Morning, everybody. My name is uh, Peter Schechter, and I'm the director of the Adrian Arsch Latin America Center. And on behalf of all of us at the center, I want to thank you for joining us today for the launch of uh, China, our Ch China Latin America Initiative and our report titled China's Evolving Relationship with Latin America, Can It Be a Win-Win? Let me just say, first of all, that I am particularly delighted that our founder, Adrian Arsht, is here with us. Her vision continues to shape everything we do, and we're incredibly grateful for all of her generosity and support. As she knows, our work in China's role on the region is a new chapter for our center, but it has always been on our radar screen. You see, the mission of our center is focused upon Latin America's profound transformations over the past 15 years. And there's no doubt that China has played a profound role in those transformations. The commodities boom powered in large part by China's massive economic expansion in the early part of this century, increased trade between Latin America and China by a staggering 2,000% since the turn of the century. Free trade agreements, loan commitments, investments, multilateral meetings such as the January 2015 China CELAC Forum have stemmed from this explosion of engagement between China and Latin America. Yet the end of the commodities boom heralds a new era for China-Latin American relations. Yes, it remains a top trading partner for many Latin American countries, but the slowdown in China's growth will inevitably have an effect on relations. But China's interest in the region has moved beyond trade. We see increased interest in its investments in the regions, as Chinese companies' interests and financial institutions have integrated deeper into the region, China has found consolidated democratic institutions, active free press, engaged civil societies in many countries. And this is mostly in striking contrast to its experience in sub-Saharan Africa. China's interests reach far beyond Cuba and Venezuela, the region's two politically stagnant and authoritarian regimes. And as this next chapter unfolds towards investments in many Latin American countries, they will find civil societies that are today heavily engaged in issues of openness and transparency. And thus one asks oneself, how will China respond to the increased Latin American demand for respect for rule of law? Chinese engagement with the region is robust, and China can be enormously an enormously beneficial partner to Latin America's emerging economies. But China is a different type of corporate competitor, one that requires new thinking. Policymakers in Latin America must begin to think more deeply about proper institutional responses and strategic planning. Professor Enrique Dussel Peters, author of today's launch report and our guest here today, has worked with our team over the last several months to begin this important initiative. His report, which we're launching in concert with this event, is an exploration not only of the major trends of the relationship, but also an analysis of five countries that represent the spectrum of China's engagement with Latin America. It includes recommendations that the, China, that the region's leaders should heed as relations continue to their next stage of development. This evolution, 
with its headwinds and with its tailwinds is precisely why the Adrian Arch Latin America Center is seeking to reignite the policy discussions regarding China's role in the region. We launched today with recommendations not only on how to improve the relationship in the near term, but also how to create a structure for the relationship between China and Latin America for years to come. So we're fortunate to hear today from key players in this important relationship moving forward, recognizing that it will be Latin Americans, not North Americans, who will be creating Latin American solutions for the region and its relations with China. So in addition to Professor Dussel Peters, we're honored to welcome Mr. Martin Berardi, president of the Latin American Steelmakers Association, Bertrand Delgado, emerging market strategist at HSBC, and Marcelo Nino, our newest Washingtonian who's just arrived from Beijing, who is the correspondent for Brazil's largest newspaper, the Folha de São Paulo. We're also fortunate that Kurt Campbell, chairman and CEO of the Asia Group and former US Assistant, Sec Assistant Secretary of State for e East Asian and Pacific Affairs, will join us for closing remarks. His insight into the US pivot towards Asia in the Obama administration will be an invaluable perspective ahead of President Xi Jinping's visit to Washington later this month. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome our panelists and the moderator, and to thank all of our staff, and particularly Thomas Corrigan, for having done all this great work to bring this together. So I give, I give you Jason Marzak, the deputy director of our center, and my colleague, who will captain the rest of this event today. Thanks, Peter. Good, good morning again, everyone. You know, as Peter said, the state visit of President Xi in just over a week is one of the more anticipated visits in recent times. Um, and that's a hard act to follow, considering that the, the Pope is coming here uh, next week. So, um, but it's incredibly anticipated. And a lot of issues are going to be on the agenda. And, but one issue that's you know, unlikely to be front and center uh, with everything else <coughs> is China's growing connections in Latin America and the Caribbean. And as Peter said, this is an issue that we believe requires much deeper analysis and insight here, but also in Latin American capitals and in China. These are things that we're going to talk about as part of the, the panel today. There's a, a lot of misunderstanding or a lack of information how this relationship is evolving. And our, we're fortunate to say that our panel today brings together some of the top experts and practitioners who are deeply involved in discerning the implications and future of the relationship. And the Adrian Arch Latin America Center, for those of you who have, who have been to our events and, and been following us over the last two years, we believe that new voices must be brought into policy discussions. And so we're thrilled to have an all-star panel with perspectives that aren't those one that you're going to typically hear uh, around Washington. You have the full bios, but Peter briefly mentioned, but I'm going to formally introduce here. To my left is Martin Berardi. Martin is the president of a regional organization called Aracero, the Latin America Steel Association. Uh, he may be Argentine, but his expertise extends far beyond that, uh, having lived in Mexico and uh, Venezuela, uh, probably among many countries, Martin, I would assume. Uh, to Martin's uh, left is Bertrand Delgado. Bertrand is a strategist in the Global Emerging Markets Research Department at HSBC for the last four plus years. Uh, but he has a robust career overall identifying and analyzing global macroeconomic trends affecting emerging markets globally, uh, but with a particular focus on Latin America. 
To Bertrand's left is uh, Marcelo Nino. Marcelo is the, is the now the Washington correspondent uh, of Forja de Sao Paulo, the Brazil's largest daily newspaper. Uh, Marcelo has spent now how long in Washington? Two, and a half, um, two months. Two months in Washington. Um, and has learned actually that to get here in the morning is actually better to walk or bike than to drive. So, uh, so he's learned Washington very quickly in, in, in two months. And until recently, he was a newspaper's correspondent in Beijing, uh, having spent the last two and a half years in Beijing. So he really brings a, a great perspective. And finally, to uh, Marcelo's left is Enrique Dulce Peters, who has many roles in life, but I'm going to use your newest title first, which is an Atlantic Council author. Um, he is also one of the top Latin America experts in China, on China, and as, as I learned working with him over the last few months, if a black belt in China, a Latin America insight could be awarded, you'd probably be one of the first people to get it, Enrique. Um, he is a professor at the Graduate School of Economics at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, uh, where he's also the coordinator of the Center of Chinese Mexico Studies. I'm going to conduct this panel in a Davos-style format, which means as much conversation between the panelists and as uh, little presentation as possible. We're going to leave questions uh, at the end for, for the audience to so start thinking about your questions. And for people watching via uh, webcast, you can tweet your questions to at ACLATAM. And you can also tweet about the event using the hashtag ACChinaLATAM. Okay, so let's start by drilling. I'm gonna start, we're gonna start by drilling down the macro dimension of the relationship, then then look at specific ways in which both, uh, which is developing from a broader perspective, but also country by country, and then we're gonna try and tease out some big takeaways, um, so that all of you who have joined us today uh, walk out of this room with some nuggets of information that you didn't necessarily know when you came in. I think I just want to point out as well that there's a lot when you talk about China and Latin America. One of the first things that people think about are security. Now, our report that's, that we're launching today and this panel is, all, is not talking about the security implications of, of China and Latin America. There's a lot of insight, a lot of analysis on that. Um, we're going to leave that to the others who have, who have focused on that in depth. Uh, we're focusing much more on the, on the trade investment and the implications of that. So Enrique, starting off with you, first, congratulations. You have um, a pass on giving a short answer to the first question, but not too big of a pass as I'd like you to consolidate a 24-page report uh, into a few minutes uh, of an overall over, uh, presentation of it. But broadly, the report looks at specific case studies of Argentina, Brazil, Cuba, Mexico, and Venezuela, each with very different histories and investment and trade relationships. What is, what is and gives a number of conclusions and recommendations, what is unique about the China, Chinese relationship with these countries, and what do you see as some of the overall trend, trend lines across the region? Right. Uh, well, again, good morning, and thank you very much to the Atlantic Council for this important uh, innovation and initiative. No? Uh, I, I think uh, uh, it is really relevant to, to go through the document. I invite you to see the details in the five uh, country case studies to see some of the particularities and characteristics in each of the countries and overall strategy from uh, China regarding uh, Latin America. Uh, and I would highlight, A, again, the proposals and policies, policy suggestions in the, in the document uh, in terms of the requirement and the need of a regional development agenda of an upgrading policy from both sides regarding particular products in, in 
in, in trade, for example, su such as soya, minerals, etc., that are relevant for Cuba, for Venezuela, the case of oil, etc. No, uh, I would. To give a general answer again, I would highlight that one of the interesting results of this document is that there is a general cautionary suggestion for the future no? in terms of what is going on between Latin America and China. As you will see in the document, there are good reasons in China and in Latin America to be cautious for the future which means very concretely there is an increasing, as you will see in the document, in the case of Cuba, in the case of Venezuela, in the case of uh, Argentina, uh, there is an increasing discussion within China in terms of an increasing risk aversion, in terms of an increasing questioning, what are we doing with the trade, what are we doing with overseas foreign direct investment, uh, what is the rate of return in the best of the cases, and also from a Latin American perspective, in each of the case uh, studies, in the case of Brazil, in the case of Mexico, a good group and an increasing group of failed projects that, again, from a Latin American perspective, question the Chinese relationship today and in the near future. No? So I would simply sum up in saying that unless China and Latin America start analyzing their effective benefits and costs, no? increasing misunderstandings will probably undermine the short, medium, and long-term relationship. And if in the short term the relationship is not harmonious, it will be very difficult that it will be harmonious in the long term. No? Thank you. Thank you. Martin, one of the, one of the um, points in this report is the, is the fact that the China that the relationship is moving very much from a uh, from a trade relationship to to an investment relationship um, uh, over the, over the years, and and much of China's investments are the region are very different than investments from say Europe or or from the United States. Um, one of those being the fact that you know China China tends to offer these these bundled turnkey investments where you have financing, insurance, op, uh, operations, construction, everything put together as part of one project. How do how do how do you see that is 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 affecting the the kind of the, the competition in the region? Do you think that does that, does that add to some to competition, or are you worried that especially in your sector in the in this in, in, with steel that Latin American industrial interests have a challenge with being able to compete with some of these uh, turnkey projects that, that the Chinese offer. Okay, thank you, Jason. First, I want to thank you to the Atlantic Council for this invitation. I think that is a very important initiative to put Latin America-China relationship as a priority in the governmental agenda in the region. Uh, of course, that uh, Chinese investment in the, in the region are very different from those coming from Europe or, or USA. Uh, when the, they are coming from Europe or USA, are multilateral financing agencies or entrepreneurial market-driven type of investments. In the case of China, they are usually state-owned companies or government-related agencies that are following this kind of going global strategy that China has. In fact, in 2014, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, the Ministry of Commerce uh, issued the first gu the guidelines of what all the investment that China is making uh, abroad should uh, should follow in order to get approval. 
Of course, these are bundled projects. China is getting in the financing of uh, infrastructure projects that requires a lot of a huge amount of money, and usually others uh, financial institutions or other countries are not don't want to get in. China is getting in what others don't want. Mm -hmm. And by providing that financing, they're, of course, getting the special conditions for the procurement of manufactured goods. And this is avoiding competition, because you, if you're not backed by uh, financing support, financial support, you cannot compete. I mean, there are some conditions in this agreement, for instance, that avoid uh, a bidding process. Mm -hmm. They can be awarded contracts directly. So. In our opinion, it's avoiding competition instead of fostering competition. Okay. And, and Bertrand, this, understand this nature, this, this turnkey nature of Chinese investment, because it really is like, a defining feature of, of, of the way China's investing. And you know, many Latin American countries saw China you know, 10 years ago as, their, as, a, as a knight in shining armor that could profoundly contribute to a changing landscape. You know, there's, there's some you know, maturity in some of those, in those views over, over time. Marti mentions the fact that, uh, that, that Chinese investors will invest in maybe sectors where, where there isn't as much interest from maybe U.S. or European uh, investors. But do you think, should, should Latin American countries themselves be engaging differently with Chinese investors than, say, uh, U.S. or uh, those of Europe or, or from, or from Asian, other Asian countries? Um, well, I mean, but thank you, everyone, for coming, and thank you, the Atlantic Council, for inviting me. Uh, well, certainly, I mean, the, we have to put into context um, where China is in the process of industrialization and where the U.S. and, the, and Europe is in the process of their own development. Uh, the U.S. and the, Euros and the Europe used to invest heavily in commodities and other parts of the same investment that the Chinese are now involved a half a century ago. Now, they are, the Chinese are in the process of industrialization, com competing to cert in certain ways uh, with other investors not only from the developed markets, but also from our uh, emerging markets. Uh, I think that the relationship uh, should continue to be on the positive tone. Uh, I think Latin America is, Latin America governments are to a certain extent responsible for improving their own human capital, to improve their industries in a way that continues to add value to the export performances. And that will create the opportunities as the Chinese move away from the early parts of the industrialization process towards a more consumption or uh, service-oriented economy. Now, having said that, now China is involved in a serious process of uh, structural reforms. And their target is basically focused on developing the, the consumption part of the, of the economy. And that will bring a lot of opportunities for Latin American governments, for a lot, a lot of Latin American companies, in the sense that as they move from uh, consuming mining or energy products uh, over the medium to long term, they will consume more from the food part, from the agricultural part. Mm -hmm. So that will obviously generate new opportunities for Latin American companies and Latin American countries. Uh, Marcelo, do you, I want to ask you, you spent the last two and a half years in, in, in Beijing. Uh, Enrique mentioned his perception that the, that the Chinese are a little bit more cautious now about some of their uh, investments in the region, um, and there's some kind of there's some questioning in China about the about the future. Do you agree with that, or or have you what you see in the last two and a half years, maybe especially in the case of Brazil, have you, or have you seen 
a, a continuation of, of what we've seen over the last decade? <clears throat> uh, first of all, uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. I'm not uh, exactly an expert, well, far from that, on China. It's very difficult to be, a, you know, it's a lifelong um, uh, uh, thing to be a, a China expert. But I, I have this experience. It was very intense to be in China for the last two and a half years. and. Um, I'm, I don't agree. I think that, uh, they, of course, they are cautious, like they are cautious in everything, but I think that they, they see, um, the, uh, let's see, for example, the crisis in Brazil as an opportunity, you know, to, have, uh, to, to make uh, good investments there. And uh, um, what, I've been, what I've been seeing in the last two years is that uh, the, uh, like you yourself wrote in the, in the report, they are not packing their bags uh, to get away. Uh, from uh, Latin America, I think that in, uh, uh, now there is the, all the, um, uh, these problems in China and these uh, uncertainties in China about the, uh, the slowdown and uh, they have to, uh, these structural reforms. Um, but I think that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the export of uh, investment is part of these structural reforms. Mm -hmm. And they have overcapacity and they uh, have a lot of capital and I think this is going to continue this interest in Latin America. Yeah. And, and, and so do you, and how, how, do you, how do you see over your two and a half years, how do you see Latin America portrayed in China? Well, I think it um, for sure, you know, um, for me, uh, I had the privilege to be in China for the first time in 1985. So uh, I went back, uh, I was still a student, and then I went back to be a correspondent uh, almost 30 years later. And uh, this gave me a, a very interesting perspective to, uh, um, you know, this huge transformation that the, the, the country went through. And also the, the way they saw Latin America. and. Um, uh, might be surprising, but uh, the, the, the freedom they had comparing to 85. For example, I remember when, um, when I was there as a tourist in 85, uh, our guide spoke Portuguese, and I, and I asked them, I asked him, uh, why do you speak Portuguese? Because I had to, because they, they told me I had to, 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 uh, to learn Portuguese. And now there's hundreds, if not thousands, of students uh, teaching, uh, learning Portuguese and Spanish and uh, the languages of Latin America because it's interesting, it's the market. It's not uh, the government anymore, it's the market telling them that it's interesting, you know. So the interesting, uh, and uh, I, I don't remember how many uh, of these kind of panels I participated in China in two and a half years about exactly this mm -hmm. uh, subject, you know, Latin America and China. And I don't remember um, how many in, in, in Brazil, there are not so many about this, you know. So. I think that the, the knowledge being produced there and the discussions being produced, produced and being held in, in China about this subject, at least in Brazil, it's not happening so much. You yeah, know? Yeah. And a good example is that there are six, or maybe less than six, six, now there are five, uh, Latin American correspondents in China, and four of them are from Cuba. Wow. So, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Enrique, I want to jump back to you. One, one, of, one of the, um, and you can feel free to, to, to now disagree with Marcel and disagreeing with you, but I also want to, one of the things that you, you mentioned in the report I want to go to is the, the, um, the nature of the kind of the, the, the flows between uh, China and Latin America. The, the numbers can really change depending on if you're asking uh, somebody from a, a Latin American capital, maybe one of the five countries in the report, or somebody from China about what those trade flows actually look like. 
Um, but one of the one of the, the stats that you put out there in the report, I just want to highlight for her because it, it, is that medium and high technology uh, exports to China from Latin America, about five percent of Latin American exports to China, but about sixty percent of what Latin America imports from China is medium and high technology uh, 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 goods. And so there's and those numbers really, I see Martin um, shaking his head a little bit. Those numbers really can can depend on the source. Um, I was thinking about how to High technology, all kind of manufactured goods, I would say. Yeah. All kind of gadgets are coming from China. Hmm. Yeah, no. So can you can you Enrique elaborate a little bit on how you're seeing these 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 flows changing and what the implications of these of these flows are for uh, for Latin American firms? Right. Uh, look, regarding this discussion with Marcelo, we we would probably agree uh, or not, I don't know. Uh, what I'm trying to, to highlight is that in the last 10 years and until last year with the fall of the prices of raw materials, uh, uh, growth in trade and investments, were the, the picture was absolutely rosy, you know, spectacular growth for uh, the next 50 years, no? to put it very extreme. And, and what I'm simply highlighting is that this is, in my, from my perspective, relatively new, that based on the experience of China in Libya, but also in other countries, you have increasingly voices in China that are asking themselves, what are we doing? Do we have any kind of regulations for foreign direct investments? What are the main policies, how are we monitoring and evaluating this, what are we doing in a group of countries, what will happen if we have a new government in particular countries, who is going to warranty this, etc. I'm not speaking of a retreat or, or that, there, that there will be a negative growth rate, but that there is a discussion that at least three years ago I have not seen on Latin America, on particular countries. No? And regarding the, the nature of flows, again, the, the issue of statistics is very substantial. When, when we take the case of Mexico, trade between Mexico and China, differences are of 300%. No? So China says it exports to, to Mexico $20 billion. Mexico says it imports from China $60 billion. No? So if you don't know if you're <laughs> exporting one pineapple or three pineapples, it's not the same. No? In, 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 the, in the case of, of foreign direct investments, the difference is in many cases by design which means, according to different sources, you have a positive flow, and according to other sources, you have a negative flow. Imagine the difference. No? So we have fantastic discussions, and I would say in most of the cases, we are not very clear what kind of source we are speaking of. It's not an academic discussion. It has policy implications. Mm -hmm. no? uh, but I would say that in general, there is a consensus regarding Latin America and China that, again, Latin America is ex there, there has been, as a matter of fact, a downgrading process of Latin American exports to China, which means in some cases, Latin America has been able to add value and technology to some products in minerals and soya beans, among others. And in the last five years, this has been going down. 
No? And the, the, the proposal in the document is this is a problem. No? If Raoul Prebisch would be alive, he would study <laughs> this case in, with a lot of detail. Uh, and the issue of a development agenda, the first country that would understand that this is a problem is China. No, China has been in the last 30 years developing an upgrading process and the developing agenda. No? Yeah, uh, Martina, I want to jump to you on this. Uh, on this the, the, the downgrading uh, uh, process that, that we've seen. You, um, uh, the Latin American Steel Association published a, a, an open letter to, uh, uh, in, in multiple countries about uh, titled um, Subsidized steel from China is threatening uh, the jobs of thousands of Latin Americans. Uh, we make a call on our governments to act urgently to share, ensure fair competition. I'll let you talk more about it. But how do you, how, obviously you have a, a um, you see the real ramifications from the steel industry of this downgrading process. What do you what are you seeing across the region? This letter came out in six different countries of how um, this downgrading is affecting your particular industry. Uh, our industry is under. I would say a severe attack from Chinese imports. Uh, let me share with you some statistics that are astonishing. For instance, this year, the export of direct steel from China to Latin America will reach up to 9 million tons. That is about 13% of regional consumption. That is, that is a lot. Yeah. And it's a growth of 70% compared, or in the last two years, compared to 2013 figures. Uh, in our value chain, for instance, in 2014, $80 billion of products manufactured with intense use of steel were imported from China to, to, to Latin America. So, I mean, the impact is, is, uh, is uh, very important. And the situation is, uh, I mean, getting worse. Why? Because first, there is a f huge overcapacity production of steel in, uh, uh, in, in China, almost 400 25 million tons of excess capacity in China. That is four times the U.S. consumption, just to figure out this number. In the last 15 years, China, China has invested uh, or added 900 million tons of uh, capacity, uh, steel production capacity, investing more than uh, $1,000 billion in a non-market-driven economy. And, and, and so exports are growing. Domestic consumption in China is going down. Mm -hmm. It fell by 4% in the last two years. That is adding to the export flow more than 30 million tons. So I think that China is uh, our number one problem in, in the region. That's why we sent this letter to the government calling for, for the attention to, to address this issue. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, Bertrand, I mean, you know, Martin mentions the the, 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 the flows and, and the way that kind of Chinese consumption of steel and other things have, has, has decreased um, over the last couple of years. What do you, I wanted to take a step back um, because one thing we haven't talked about is are the headlines that all of us are very familiar with over the last couple months of, or the last month, uh, the Chinese market volatility, right? And you know, what, what is really happening in China? What's, what's going on beyond the headlines? Is this something that we should be um, concerned about or is this a, a, a natural kind of change in the cycle and, and we're going to get back up to these you know 10% growth rates and and then obviously this has real ramifications on, on Latin America so just to take that from bigger picture perspective how how do you see this Chinese market down downturn having uh, an effect on investor interest in the region do you see this as, as, as something long-term or is this a short-term uh, blip 
Um, oh, excellent question. Uh, there are two answers to this. The first one is, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, China is going through a massive restructuring process of their economy. So therefore, they have moved from invest investment export-led economy towards a more consumption uh, service-oriented economy. Now, in that process, they are at the same time trying to open up the capital account and become more uh, pursuing of their own currency to become an international reserve currency. So that is taking a hold in a process where the, the global demand from developed markets have declined significantly. So the overall impact on the global economy has been quite severe. And we've seen in terms of what's going on with the commodity prices, what is going on with global trade, what was going on with the impact on emerging markets. Now, internally, all this process have, well, the stock market in China is relatively young. Yeah. Uh, as they continue to open their capital accounts, meaning allowing foreign investors to participate not only from Hong Kong, but also internally, that creates volatility. That creates all these upswings, ups and downs. I mean, uh, over the last six months have done 50%, but it's still 40% up compared to a year ago. So this volatility is part of a maturing economy. Uh, now, the second part of is it is going to continue. It is going to it's mean that uh, now we are in a process of stagnation in China. Uh, we, the HWC perspective is that that is not the case. Uh, we think that uh, the overall uh, policy tools that the government has from the monetary perspective, from the fiscal perspective, is still quite significant. Mm -hmm. So they can, to a certain extent, provide some relief to the economy from coming down to uh, what's called a heartland. We think, our perspective is that it will, it will grow around 7% this year and potentially 7 to 7.5% in the coming year. Whether China is able to grow back to the 10%, 11%, we don't think that is the case. I think that is more a potential long-term if the structural reforms, the whole, and the global economy comes back. Mm -hmm. But in the short term, that is unlikely to happen. So what, what do you see insofar as Chinese flows to, to Latin America specifically in the, in the future? Uh, the main channel is obviously the commodity prices. And that has affected the terms of trade of most of Latin America since they are commodity exporters. Now, the positive part is that that will pressure on the governments to try to also entail structural reforms. Most of them are inefficient. Uh, I would say uh, Peru, Chile, the last time that they went through a process of structural reforms was 20 years ago. Mexico just come with structural reforms over the last two years. But still, you know, Latin America should continue to evaluate and revalue their strategy for the long-term economic growth. If they own their own future, I think that uh, the process of uh, improving the human capital, improving their competitiveness is key. Now, obviously they depend, our economies depend from the global cycle, but in this case, it is a great opportunity for Latin America governments and enterprises to come with ideas to become more productive and go ahead and do a structural reform that are extremely needed in many, in many, yeah. in many cases. 
Bertrand, it's like you're setting up Enrique for one of the, the five conclusions and the, the recommendations in the report. Because one of the recommendations, Enrique, is specifically that Latin American governments, private sector need to come together for some type of, 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 uh, of kind of broader agenda toward China, right? That there, there, there doesn't, that doesn't exist right now, right? There isn't, uh, maybe it's the, the business sector might talk to each other in, this, in one country, or the policymakers might have some notion, but there really isn't some type of concerted strategy toward China. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that, on that recommendation you have in the report? Yes, it's very surprising, again, how China's presence has increased all over. No, we have discussed here a lot the issue of trade, investment, financing, but it's not only in this regard, also regarding educational exchange, uh, uh, Confucius Institutes uh, developing, cultural exchange, etc. Uh, so the presence is increasing very substantially all over, but it is impressive to see how, lit how weak the institutions in Latin America are vis-a-vis -vis China. When you go to Mexico, Mexico, you go to Brazil, you go to Argentina, there are very few specialized institutions regarding China no? on a daily basis, not only when a delegation from China comes and then, what did we say six months ago, no? and who remembers? No? <laughs> uh, that is very usual, but in, in general it's amazing to see how, lit, how weak Latin American institutions are, are regarding China, and I would tell you that in general, I don't know of a single country in Latin America today who has a clear strategy in the short, medium, and long term vis-a-vis -vis China. That is true. Contrary to China, China in the last 10 years has been very clear imposing in the first white book in 2008, I would say, and secondly, also in this CELAC meeting at the ministerial level in 2015, in January of, two, of this year, China is very clear what it expects from, from Latin America. China says in 10 years we want to double trade flows, we want to triple investments in Latin America, uh, we are going to grant 6,000 uh, uh, MAs to Latin America, and so they are very, it's very clear what China wants from Latin America. The region and at the bilateral level, uh, again, it's surprising how little internal and domestic work has been done, no? all over. Yeah. Marcel, do you, as a, I'll put the Brazilian on the spot here, do you agree with that? Do you think that Brazil has no, no not really a clear strategy toward, toward China? Yes, I, I totally agree. I think I mentioned to you, um, and it's not, you know, it's easy to blame the governments, but it's not only, only the governments. Like no. you said, it's, it, what's needed, it's a, it's a strategy, and this word is, you know, should be uh, um, comprehensive to, uh, to scholars and to uh, universities and also to the private sector and uh, the government. And this is lacking in, in Brazil and in Latin America, I think. And uh, you know, I often uh, ask uh, um, um, diplomats and uh, um, uh, businessmen, uh, business people uh, who are interested in China, what's the strategy of Brazil uh, towards China? And then uh, I, I stopped using the, the word strategy and I went straight <laughs> to the point. What, what does Brazil want from China? You know, and then I stopped doing this also, this question, and then I said, what does Brazil doesn't want from China? <laughs> because uh, it's very difficult to get an answer. You know? I don't know if there is an answer. And, if you, and, and in China, there are answers for that. You know? yeah. And so, of course, there is, they have the advantage uh, in the relation. Not only that, others too, you know, yeah. of course. 
Martina, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll put you on the spot here. So if you, if, if there, if you could think of a, of a strategy or some sort of policy mechanisms that you know, government and corporate leaders can come together to do to prevent any type of, prevent deindustrialization, but at the same time not cut Latin America off from what's become a leading trade partner, what would be your suggestion? First, we need, uh, I mean, a common view in the region of what means China for Latin America. We are lucky enough of that, and country by country, we don't have even an idea what to do in the long term with China. We have to study more which are the effects in, 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 uh, of this kind of influence in the, in the area. I think that uh, another issue that we have to talk about is China presence in Latin America is eroding the integration of the region because it's substituting intra-zone trade. For instance, some, some numbers. I mean, Argentina is importing more manufactured goods from China than from Brazil mm. and having Mercosur in place. Yeah. I mean, Brazil and Argentina could not sell any more manufactured goods to Chile, Peru, and Ecuador. It's impossible. I mean, it's flooded by Chinese products. Mexico is losing share in the US, selling auto parts, for instance. So, I mean, the trade agreements in the area are as less uh, attractiveness mm -hmm. for the governments, okay? Not surprisingly, you will find politicians saying that, forget Mercosur, Uruguay should be negotiating along with Europe. Uruguay should be negotiating along with, uh, with China or Brazil. Politicians, I heard all politicians in Brazil saying, congressmen in Brazil saying, forget about Argentina, we have to go alone. That's not good for Argentina. In the long term, I think that uh, in order to have a more stable economy in the region, we need to foster regional uh, integration. That is very important. Yeah. Marcel, do you, do you, do you, have you seen certain steps that Latin American governments have taken, especially from your time in, in Beijing, to try to ensure some more transparent dealings with, with China? I think you know the problem is there is a, the relation is very non-symmetrical, so it's very hard to say no to China, especially when um, there is this competing. There is no common view, uh, and everybody, all the countries are competing for for uh, the Chinese capital. So it's very hard to uh, to, to to say no to China, and mm -hmm. of course uh, the Chinese. I think they are uh, understanding that uh, uh, they cannot that the standards. In, in Latin America, you know, there is a lot of uh, talk about the Africanization of the relation, you know, that uh, they are going to do the same thing that they did in Africa, in, including uh, sending uh, um, uh, Chinese workers to, to Latin America. There is a big discussion in, in Argentina with this last uh, agreement that they are going, no, nobody really knows if they are going to happen. Can you talk about what's the last agreement you're referring to? Yeah, the, the, the agreement um, uh, between Argentina and Chile in, um, in uh, China. It was a, a very comprehensive uh, agreement that includes everything from even military. Uh, it's a framework. A framework uh, agreement, and um, the, the the main uh, well, Martin can speak more than better than me about this. But there there was a big concern about uh, uh, this lack of transparency, and um, um, I think that China plays also with the. Uh, um, that, they, that, that everybody wants to be uh, in the Chinese market and everybody wants the Chinese investment. So uh, um, they have a, a very big advantage on, in that. And, uh, but I think that China, China is also understanding that they have to, uh, um, if they don't want the, the, the failure of uh, some, some projects, recent projects like that. There was in Mexico one, that, uh, the high-speed uh, railway that was canceled. There was one in Myanmar, the dam project that was suspended. 
because of uh, protests of local communities. There was one in Sri Lanka, the port in Colombo, that was um, uh, suspended, I think. I don't know what uh, the status now. So I think that the Chinese also are understanding that they have to play by the rules, rule of law, and, and to understand the, the local uh, concerns. Of, otherwise, they will have the, uh, these problems, you know. That's interesting. You think the Chinese are, are beginning to think that they need to, to, to play by the same rules of, of the game? I think they have to. They, they are, they are, yeah, I think they are um, uh, starting to um, understand that they have to at least know better where they are going and not to export the standards of uh, lack of transparency there is uh, in China, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Bertrand, I want to ask you about kind of more about investment flows and what that means for U.S. and European firms to compete. But before that, I, I want to ask you, Enrique, do, do you, is, that, is that what you're seeing as well? Are you seeing this the greater transparency and greater uh, respect for the rule of law? Or, 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 or are you seeing on the flip side that Chinese investments are maybe pulling, um, detracting from the many gains that have been seen in institutions across Latin America over the last, over the last decade uh, insofar as uh, institution building and, and rule of law? My impression, and as you will read from the report, is that in the last two, three years today and in the near future, we will have an increasing tension in this regard. On the one hand, uh, one of the attractiveness of China and Latin America, but also in other parts of the world, are these turnkey projects. No, what does this mean? It means that China is able to offer you, if you sign and agree, they will offer it to you, to say, look, I will build a road from Brazil to Peru with financing, technology, etc., 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 with the Chinese firms, and we will pay for the meat, the coffee, and the mate, and the whatever, <laughs> everything. Even the mate. And that is a problem, no, of course, because a, a good group of domestic and local firms say, look, historically and today and tomorrow, we are able to integrate and to participate in these projects. If you sign and agree with initial agreements, of course, they will exclude a lot of firms. No? And I think the, the first one who would understand that in some cases this is not legal, in other cases this is not ethical, the first one would be the Chinese. No? If you would have a Japanese firm in China saying, look, we want to build a road from Chengdu to uh, Shenzhen, uh, and this is going to be all Japanese, even the rice, I can tell you what the reaction will be. It will not be very positive. So this is the attractiveness. And on the other hand, I would say there is an increasing social political pressure in China and in Latin America to be a bit more transparent, to go beyond the G2G relationship, mm -hmm. etc. No? Mm -hmm. So there is a tension there, no? because yeah. these packages, these turnkey pre-projects are in most of the cases very intransparent. No? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I want to ask a question. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm gonna go yeah. I, I just don't you think that uh, there is this fear that there is not going to be a transparent uh, uh, deals like, for example, this interoceanic uh, project railway between Peru and Brazil. You know, this is a project that will be we will encounter a lot of problems. You know, with environment and local communities and all all of this. But on the other hand, there is a huge need for infrastructure in Latin America. And uh, I don't see any other uh, country that can provide these projects, you know, uh, only the Chinese. So don't you think that in the end, 
uh, there has to be not specifically on this project, but it's not you know only say uh, there is no transparency, but there is no other uh, country or uh, other company that, that can make these projects. And still, the Latin American countries, and not only the Latin American countries, they need a lot of infrastructure project. So there is a middle ground here that is possible. Don't you think? China's making a big global effort, and I think it has attracted a lot of attention regarding these infrastructure projects. No? Saying we're going to put hundreds of billions of US dollars in terms of development and infrastructure. And I think this has been very intelligent. No? And of course, China can offer these turnkey projects with the problems I mentioned. No? They even say, call it infrastructure diplomacy. There. No. Well, no. the new Silk Road, the maritime, yeah, exactly. whatever. But so this is a, a real need, not only in Latin America, but also in other places. Uh, the problem is, again, I would say that as Chinese turnkey projects have developed within China, there is no need for this transparency. And so China is also learning beyond China. No? Mm -hmm. And it depends a lot on the counterparts, which is Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, Jamaica, whatever, Guatemala, how they react. Mm -hmm. If they sign an agreement where from the screw to the financing, everything is going to come from China, China is going to say, look, here is your signature. No? Okay. <laughs> it yeah. was your government 10 years ago, but here is your signature. Yeah. So there is a big responsibility in our countries, and China is learning also. Yeah. And, and Bertrand, what, do, what does that mean? What does this different nature of investment mean for the ability of US and European firms to be able to compete with their Chinese counterparts? I mean, is, 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 is Enrique and Marcelo discuss, are discussing this? There's this, there's this real transparency tension, uh, which you don't have with the US and European firms. How, how do you compete in this environment? Uh, well, the nature of the investment is relatively different. I mentioned it before, uh, the nature of the, the, Euro, the Eurozone or uh, U.S. investments in Latin America are not focused on commodities. They are not focused on infrastructure necessarily. They are focused on financing and market-oriented investments. So that is a different game, how you do it. And as, a, as I, I, at the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned it, that uh, the process of development in China is completely different to what uh, the, the, Euros, the Eurozone and, and, and the U.S. is. So they are, as the U.S. and the Eurozone try to secure sources of uh, commodities and logistics in Latin America 50 to 100 years ago, now the, the, the Chinese are also doing the same. Now, the difference, obviously, is what kind of uh, outlook do you see in mm -hmm. terms of Chinese investments? Uh, uh, Chinese is, as I mentioned, is going through a process of restructure, right? They are allowing also the private sector to continue to grow more and more. They are trying to become more like a no global economy, powerful global economy in terms of GDP growth, et cetera, but also in terms of politics, in terms of uh, accessing markets in a more, uh, let's see, holistic way mm -hmm. that we okay. expect in the long term. So as the private sector as the Chinese private sector increases and participates also in international trade, we would think that that will have repercussions on the discussions between the government of foreign companies with Latin America. Let me make a couple of comments Please. about the trade between Latin America and, uh, and, uh, and China. First of all, we agree, uh, we think 
that in order to sell primary products, in order to sell raw materials, minerals, uh, soybeans, you don't need a trade agreement. There, are, there is low product differentiation. You can switch suppliers and customers easily. So uh, the only reason to get into trade agreement for China is to get financing. That's the only way. And the process of deindustrialization that is happening in Latin America is not a question of bundled projects of these kind of things. It's a process of unfair trade. This is an important issue because Chinese are exporting without any, making any money, any profit. Mm. According to World Steel Organization, the steel companies have not made any profit in the last five years, but they are still increasing their exports, increasing their investment, increasing their production capacity. So unfair trade is the issue. But by getting financing, or by providing financing, Chinese is, get, is getting more political influence in, in the area. For instance, many countries have accepted China as a market-driven economy. It's clear it's not a market-driven economy. And when you're trying to use WTO, World Trade Organization rules, in order to stop unfair trade, when you consider a country a market-driven economy, it's completely different than when the country is not. In order to determine what is the fair value of exports. Mm -hmm. So this is an important issue. Yeah, yeah. I want to leave plenty of time for questions and answers. I, I just, I'd be, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask Enrique uh, about one hot project that's mentioned in the report, which is the, um, well actually there's two, but one is the, the canal through Nicaragua, um, which is, uh, has generated a lot of interest uh, here in the US about is this canal actually going to move forward? Uh, what are the implications of it? Um, what's, what, what, are the, what does this mean for Chinese influence? Enrique, what are your, what are your perspectives on, on, on the canal and its potential to, to move forward and what it means more broadly for uh, Chinese investment in the region? Again, it's an, 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 a massive project that could change very substantially the relationship in this new triangular relationship between Latin America, China, and the United States. No? Uh, in my opinion, initially uh, at the beginning of this year, I thought this was not very serious, uh, but the longer the year continues, I understand that the Chinese central government is playing with this idea, not necessarily to build this canal, but to use it as a negotiation coin for something. No? <laughs> uh, because if the government doesn't say no, it is still giving space for, for this. No? This will, if it is built, I don't think it will be built, imagine the implications in Central America, in Nicaragua, uh, it will divide the country. In, uh, there are lots of different discussions. Again, financially, I think it would be not a problem for China to do this. Uh, the Ortega government has said we can start yesterday. No? And the implications, again, the geostrategic and military implications will be massive. The big question is, going, is who is going to finance this? No? Because a billionaire is not sufficient to do this. You, you cannot have your personal canal, no? yeah. or not yet. No? Usually a billionaire is sufficient for most things, but for, but for building a canal, maybe not. Uh, questions, please raise your hand. Also, if you have questions via, on the web, just tweet them to at ACLATAM. Uh, there'll be microphones coming around. I saw your question first, sir, in the, in the second row, so we'll take that first. Excellent presentation. Bernardo Rico, World Bank. Just to pick up on Enrique's uh, comment and question, too, about this triangular re relationship between the United States, Latin America, and China, how do the panelists see what is 
the U.S.'s role in all of this? I mean, the U.S. obviously has its own kind of issues in dealing with China itself. And I think it kind of goes back to some of the points we made earlier about is there a plan even in the United States for U.S.-China relationships or U.S.-China relationship? What is the plan for a triangular relationship within that context amongst those three countries for the United States? What's the sense of the, from the panelist? Great question. Is there, is there, is there a plan in, in, the, in the U.S.? We talked about the fact there's no plan in, in most Latin American countries, but Enrique, do you want to? Look, very briefly, it would be interesting to see also concretely, for example, regarding steel or others, what is the role of, of the United States. But I would tell you that in general, it's impressive to see how little interest there is in this issue. Not to speak of a strategy, like you were saying, you know, you, you don't have to insist on the topic, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, the emergence or re-emergence of China is playing a massive role in the United States. We have uh, calculated, for example, that from the year 2001 to 2014, if we as assume the same uh, export quota of the United States to Latin America, uh, only in 2014, China has lost 145 billion in US exports. And according to the Trade Department in the United States, this means that China, uh, the United States, have could have created more than 840,000 jobs in the United States. I'm not bashing anyone. I'm simply saying there is something very big going on. And there is no discussion in this, on this topic, neither in, in the business area, I would say, neither in the executive, uh, but also not very much in the academic sector. And this is very important. And I would invite to go beyond uh, backyard of the United States and the Monroe Doctrine, which is not very useful. No? We're speaking in 2015 of a new triangular relationship that you have to take very seriously. And I don't see this in Washington. No? But vis-a-vis -vis trade, I read some reaction from the US government. I read that uh, they have recently enacted what they call the leveling the playing field, asking the, 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 the the government entities to uh, apply to fully apply WTO uh, rules in order to counteract unfair trade from China. Great point, uh, sir. In the second one, we'll take two questions, both in the second. If you can identify yourself first, please. Jose Miguel Pulido with Mitsui and Co. Thank you very much. Uh, this question is directed primarily to Marcelo. Um, when you said that. Uh, Chinese entities are looking at Brazil's crisis as an opportunity uh, for new business opportunities. Uh, what sort of industries are they targeting and what aspects of the crisis make it favorable for Chinese uh, companies? Thank you. And we'll um, take the uh, other question the same row. Uh, Roberto, right there. Yeah. Uh, my name is Gonzalo Paz. I am a researcher at Georgetown University. I would like just a very brief comment on, on the political economy of this relationship. Um, now we're seeing the political effects of the relationship being really very important in the region. It's a structural feature. We cannot imagine the, the last period of the current government in Argentina without the intervention of China supporting the reserves 
in the Central Bank of Argentina, for example. So we are beginning to see the political effects of, of this relationship. Uh, but one of the questions that I receive more frequently, it's about uh, the growing uh, or not uh, growing of the soft power of China in Latin America. I would like to ask uh, my colleague Enrique and the other in the, the panel uh, about power. this. Thank you. Great. Okay. The first question, uh, and then we'll then we'll move to. Uh, and, uh, sir, we talked a little bit about that Argentina agreement uh, earlier, but then we'll we'll move to the soft power. Uh, I think that um, infrastructure projects it's uh, something that uh, interests to Brazil a lot, and also, uh, like I said, uh, China has the capacity to do it. It was funny. Um, um, the, in the beginning of the year, there was the CELAC China Forum. It's a it's a, the um, organization of uh, Latin American Caribbean countries, and China did the first ministerial uh, uh, meeting in, uh, in Beijing in January. And um, uh, there was all over Beijing, it was uh, posters of the new slogan of the Chinese government was win-win. But the thing is that the first win was in capital letters, and the second was in small letters. You know, so it was a, <laughs> this gave some fuel to uh, this uh, suspicion and uh, you know, some humor. Um, I think that there is a complementarity. Uh, this is a, also the win-win complementarity uh, um, uh, relation that Brazil and China can uh, enjoy. But the, the, the big problem is how, the big question is how they are going to do it and it's trans go back to transparency. Um, um, like you probably all know, um, the uh, National Oil Company of Brazil is in, uh, in a very big crisis. There was a big uh, corruption scandal and uh, like two months ago, uh, there was a big loan from a Chinese bank to uh, Petrobras, to the National Oil Company of Brazil. And um, me and other journalists, we tried to, to know how, was the, uh, how were the conditions of the loan, and until now, we don't know. So there was a lot of talks of uh, what's going to be the, uh, you know, the, uh, the trade-off of this loan, and uh, this is, uh, these are questions that are uh, uh, in every uh, transaction uh, between uh, Latin America and China, China in general. But I think infrastructure, energy projects, uh, this is uh, something that uh, interests China as an opportunity a lot, yeah. This, this, just before we move to the next question about soft power, this issue of transparency is something that Enrique details in one of his recommendations of, of the importance of multilateral institutions. Maybe you want to... And reciprocity, too. Uh, yeah, this is important. So, uh, again, if you look at the, at the document, you will see there a, 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 an important discussion regarding this institutional soft power of China in the region. I would hi highlight, A, again, and, and, and highlighting uh, some of the discussion of the, the prior uh, persons, 87% of China's mergers and acquisitions from China in Latin America is being done by public firms, no? 87%. In the rest of the world, investing in Latin America, this share is not 3%. No? So the option and the field for working in terms of hard, but also of soft power, is very important. Both sides are learning. No? Uh, and we will see, I, this is my, my impression in the near, near future, a harsh learning process where you will have political changes uh, in which, in terms of pol new political parties, the fall 
of some of the governments in Latin America, and the big question will be then who will warranty some of these negotiations, uh, macroeconomic, in some cases particular projects, that in the best of the cases are not very legal, in some cases they are not even constitutional, and in, the, in other cases they are simply not ethical because they exclude massive uh, firms. No? I would rephrase the, the, the word transparency. I would say that uh, uh, the private sector was not engaged prior, prior the signature, before the signature of these tr uh, trade agreements, of these uh, kind of framework agreements. That's why it's a lot of discussion in Argentina, in Brazil, whatever. So uh, we are looking forward to have, uh, I mean, a more active interaction, more active articulation between the private and, and the public sector in our countries. Yeah. Other questions? I see two hands in the back row, so let me or toward the back, so let's take them together. And if you can identify yourself first, please. Hi, Fabiola Cordova from the National Endowment for Democracy. This, the National Endowment for Democracy. There's been a good um, discussion on transparency standards, but I was also interested in your thoughts on other standards, labor standards, human rights standards, environmental standards, and whether Chinese investments are lowering standards in the region or not. Also, on a second part uh, of the question, whether you feel that China or Chinese companies are sensitive to local community pressures or not? Because a lot of, in a lot of countries, I'm thinking Venezuela, Ecuador, even Nicaragua, the governments themselves are not very sensitive to local pressures. So is, are they advocating before Chinese companies an option or not worth it? Great, thanks. And then we'll take the question, I think, in the row behind you as well. Hi. Zane de Ponte, Embassy of the Netherlands. Um, I wanted to touch upon the themes of uh, transparency, but also what Mr. Delgado mentioned about this shift towards food commodities. Um, in recent years, both Brazil and Argentina have drafted proposals to change the, the laws concerning uh, land leasing and land purchasing. And I know this is a controversial issue in the media, but I wanted to ask, is Chinese land grabbing an actual issue for Latin America, or what your take on the food security objectives of China vis-a-vis -vis Latin America are? And my question is for Mr. Delgado and Enrique specifically. Thank you. Okay. Bertrand, would you like to, to start uh, sure. responding to that? Uh, well, I mean, the, the change in the, the, the way the Chinese economy is likely to move over the medium to long term is towards a wealthier consumer where the consumption of high protein or different foods than they're currently consuming will entail large imports of what Latin America can provide in terms of uh, high, high quality grains, etc., from Brazil, from Argentina, and from other countries. So that is a process that is likely to continue and as the, as the Chinese consumer and the Chinese economy move to a wealthier ground. Uh, certainly there's been some issues related to land grabbing or land purchasing in uh, Brazil and Argentina, but it's, you know, it has to stop uh, because of uh, actions, nationalistic actions by the governments. Uh, whether that is going to change in the futures, oh, that's something to be seen. Your perspective on uh, labor environmental standards. 
I would say that in general China is scaringly pragmatic. No? There is no political incorrectness. So uh, in terms of what, in terms of environment, in terms of labor standards, uh, the, the, the issues are discussed locally, regionally with the respective counterparts. So in Argentina, they do one thing. Uh, in Tokyo, where they have Lenovo has research and development centers, they comply with the highest standards regarding labor and whatever. And in other parts, they don't. No? So it's scaringly, again, pragmatic uh, in, in, on these issues and also regarding land grabbing. If there is a possibility of leasing, buying, renting a land in Argentina or Paraguay or Brazil uh, does so, they will participate. No? Other countries would not dare to think about that. No, If a yeah. Brazilian would like to buy a square meter in Argentina, uh, the idea would not come up. No, <laughs> uh, But in other cases, the, this is for real. No, So the pragmatism is very scary, and also in a positive term. No? If you see investments, for example, recently in Peru, in Chinalco, no? uh, in the mining sector, I think there has been a very positive learning process if you compare this investment with prior Chinese investment in Peru in the same sector. No? Okay. Just want to add something and agree with you with something you said before. It's not only, uh, you know, the Chinese, they are going to, uh, to do it, what they can do. And it's, uh, that's why also we need strong governments and strong institutions in Latin America to say no. Um, uh, and uh, um, I think that I... I uh, kind of disagreed you when you compare the situation in Libya and they're more cautious when they, because Brazil, for example, and most of the countries in Latin America, they are much more institutionally strong, you know, especially Brazil, even with the political crisis, there is no, I don't think there is uh, um, any doubts that uh, the institutions are strong, you know, even with the crisis in the presidency. But uh, so I think that it's the role of the governments to, uh, to, to keep their um, environmental and uh, labor standards. In Brazil, there is uh, even some people say it's too much of the labor, labor environmental standards. There are many projects that were stopped because of environmental uh, 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 legislations and labor legislations that people say, no, it's too much and it's stopping the development of the country. So I don't think that's this, it's only a, you know, to blame the Chinese, we have to, to do our homework and do, you know, the governments have to do what they have to do. Environmental issues, for instance, in the steel industry, in World Steel Association, every country, every region is reporting, for instance, CO2 emissions every year and energy consumption every year, setting new goals, uh, because we, are, we have the common view that we have to work in the environment. We share the planet, but it's not the case with China. China is not reporting anything. Hmm. And the old production capacity in China does not comply with the minimum, minimum environmental uh, standards yeah. that are not acceptable, not only in Europe and US, not, not only in Latin America, I would say. Yeah. So, I mean, one, one of the keys is to, is to ensure that the, the strength of the institutions that we've seen in Latin America over the last decade or so is not only maintained, but it gets even stronger. And how do you ensure that the increase in Chinese investments um, doesn't detract from that? I think that's what, what we're all saying. We have time for one more question. Um, um, and I'll, I saw your hand first or in the third row, and then we'll move on to our closing keynote remarks. 
Uh, I'm Kent Eaton at the Woodrow Wilson Center, professor at UC Santa Cruz. And I wonder if any of you see any meaningful differences between the way left governments in Latin America have responded to China and right governments or non-left governments. Um, so the, the, this very important point you're developing about the strength of institutions is one way to think about variation across Latin America and whether or not there's a different, different, differentiated response to uh, China. Do you see any kind of ideological left-right difference? So, so China's brought capital to Latin America, but it's also for the left governments, given um, Latin America some leverage vis-a-vis -vis the United States, right? And so, so do you see any kind of ideological um, pattern here in terms of left versus non-left governments in Latin America in the response to China? I wouldn't say that this is related to different political views. I think that it's more related with the financial point of view. I mean, the lack of financing in some countries is what uh, giving China a, an enormous room of opportunity to get influence in, in the region. So then the political speech explain why, but I mean, the, 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 the main reason is financing. Say, as you mentioned in Argentina or the project financing in, in, in Brazil, I mean, that's the main reason that why the, 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 the governments in Latin America want to have a relationship with, with China. It's not trade agreements uh, to sell uh, primary products, it's financing. I think on that note, I, yeah, I, I agree that the, the main ideology is financing, but I, I also think that the, um, the left wing. Um, governments are more, um, they, they have more sympathy to, to China. In Brazil is the case, the, uh, they have more sympathy than the, the others. But uh, having said that, the, uh, the previous government before the left government, they also were very interested in China in finance uh, and investments from China. But I would yes, say in case of Brazil, and uh, there is a, more sympathy because of being left uh, wing government. Last comment. I think there are important differences. No, China is trading with all the countries in the region, with diplomatic relationships or not. We've been working on Guatemala or Paraguay, etc., and, and and Nicaragua without diplomatic ties. And China has is massively trading, trade exports and imports. If you do not have a good relation, political relationship, or you don't have a diplomatic relationship, China will barely invest in your country. Why? Because China does not, war the public sector does not warranty investments. There are no investment treaties. So at the micro level, a firm, a public or a private firm, will have difficulties investing in your country and it's your at your own risk. And it's not, I would say, surprising that based on a good political relationship, China is massively in financing in Venezuela and in Cuba. Mm -hmm. Why? Because there is a strong government-to-government -government relationship. Financing in Paraguay <coughs> uh, is, is irrelevant from China to Paraguay. Why? Because the G2G government and the diplomatic relationship does not exist. So there are important differences. No? Well, we could probably continue this discussion for another couple hours, but I would encourage you, since we don't have that time, to read the report. One of the things in the report is it mentions that over 450 agreements have been signed since 1999 between China and Venezuela. So going to, back to your point about uh, ide ideology. But please join me in uh, thanking again uh, Enrique, Marcelo, Bertrand, and Martin for an excellent discussion. And thank you. And now it's my pleasure to... Um, to welcome our closing, please.
our uh, closing keynote speaker, uh, Kurt Campbell. Kurt uh, Campbell is the chairman and CEO of the Asia Group, a strategic advisory and capital management group specializing in the dynamic Asia Pacific region. Uh, but also from 2009 to 2013, he served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, where he is widely credited as being a key architect of the well-known pivot to Asia. Um, for him, advancing a comprehensive uh, strategy toward Asia was very much uh, a part of his agenda while at the State Department and one of the reasons he was awarded the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award in 2013, which is the nation's highest honor. Uh, Dr. Campbell has a experience uh, across government, across the, uh, the private sector, and I, I could think of very few people who would be better positioned uh, than Kurt Campbell to give a closing keynote remarks, uh, especially to preview what he thinks might come out, of, come out as a result of President Xi's uh, visit to, uh, to, to Washington uh, in just a, a week or so's time. So again, everyone please join me in welcoming uh, Kurt Campbell. Thank you very much. I had the great pleasure to listen to the previous panel and just very good, incisive remarks about uh, China's role uh, in our hemisphere and the important work that they're doing across Latin and South America. I want to compliment very much the Atlantic Council for the work that they've been doing just across the board. Fred has done a terrific job and it's just a pleasure to be here today. And I must say a word of thanks to my colleague, Capricia. Uh, who is very persuasive. Uh, we have a, a kids event today at school and I am kind of going into the, the demerit category by missing it, but saying no to Capricia was even harder. So I'm here and very pleased to be here. So thank you very much. So, so let, let me just set the stage for you a little bit about what to expect when President Xi arrives in Washington in a little over a week, right? Um, so, one of my jobs when I was Assistant Secretary of State is when senior Chinese leaders come to the United States, they often visit and go take a look around. Uh, president Xi, before he was president of China, he was the vice president of China and came to the United States as a guest of Vice President Biden. So as a consequence, I had a chance to go around him, go around with him as he visited places that he'd uh, uh, visited before as a younger person. He is one of those Chinese leaders that had the benefit of studying in the United States as a younger person. He was a student in Iowa. We had a chance to go visit the family that he lived with and uh, he also visited a lot of different cities. So he's a Chinese leader who actually has quite a bit of experience in the United States. He rarely speaks in the English, but he understands it fairly well. Um, during that period, as I spent time with him and observed him, I don't think I've ever um, met a Chinese leader that was more difficult to really read. He was extraordinarily cautious at that period. And that's not uh, 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 an accident or, or particularly surprising. As you're waiting to ascend to the highest position in China, you're trying to do everything to make sure that no one really knows the direction that you're going to go. So the interesting thing about China, ladies and gentlemen, is that for the last 30 years, they have actually put in place institutions to ensure 
that collective leadership. And that means a group of people together using the bureaucracy, using the institutions of government, will make decisions together, right? And this is an attempt to avoid periods in the past when the cult of individual or certain personalities played an absolutely dominant role in China. And so the interesting thing about Premier or President Xi is that he came to power with the very strong support of basically all the factions in China, and particularly the strong support of Jiang Zemin and the so-called Shanghai group or clique as it's often called, right? So he comes to power with a very established mechanism for policy and for taking decisions. So let's jump ahead. It's been about a little over two and a half years. We're now in a situation today in which virtually every single decision in China is taken by one man, taken by Xi Jinping. Um, in the past, when we were preparing for a summit, we would use the institutions of government, the State Council, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Finance, and there would be an enormous amount of preparation in advance. And we had a very good idea what to expect when we would sit down across the table from Chinese interlocutors. Today, I find when I visit Beijing and I meet with uh, senior Chinese officials, oftentimes they're talking to me to try to learn more about what I know about his own leadership because so much is cloistered within the leadership compound around Xi Jinping. And so what have we seen since he's come to power? What's interesting about him? Well, first of all, as we all know publicly, he has um, suggested that he wants to put China through an absolutely wrenching reform effort, which will essentially take China from a state-led um, model of economic performance to one in which consumers and the market drive innovation and uh, a market economy. Now, some there's a lot of debate in the economic community about how far along he is in that reform. I would be one of those people that would say he's only barely begun, and already the wrenching uh, uh, challenges are being experienced in the market and in other developments. And so what we've seen in the last two months are the most significant drop in the Chinese stock market, lots of anxiety about macroeconomic policy, but probably the most important development is that China has a number of tools that they've always used when they face these kinds of economic problems, right? They've basically stoked the pump with macroeconomic uh, uh, incentives and, and used uh, state spending to basically try to resurrect growth. But what they are finding is that those tools are no longer working, right? So President Xi comes to the United States in a period of unprecedented anxiety about where China is headed economically. But not only has he done this, he has basically um, proceeded to um, uh, auger in and preside over the most significant anti-corruption effort in modern Chinese history. So everyone is anxious, literally everyone. Um, senior political figures, senior 
uh, business leaders. I just came from a, a, a business uh, meeting earlier today, and I was explaining to these American you know, titans of industry that many Chinese business leaders now every month have to sit down in a session with their colleagues and members of the party and explain in self-critical mode all the things that they didn't do well in the preceding month. You can imagine how much American business leaders would like that, right? But that's what is going on in China right now. There are thousands of current cases against senior officials for allegations of corruption, probably tens of thousands of arrests. And so there is an enormous amount of anxiety across the board in China about uh, issues associated with corruption and the like. Now, there is a debate. Some think that this is an attempt to send a very clear message that that kind of dirty dealing will not be accepted. Others think that there is an interesting coincidence between this campaign and President Xi's political enemies, right? And so the people that have been gone after have been those that potentially pose a risk to him. What's interesting is that many of the key players that supported him in his attempt to achieve power, uh, particularly President, former President Jiang uh, uh, Zemin, probably the most powerful man in China, um, until quite recently, is now very much at odds with him. So, pres so lots of anxiety among senior leaders. The famous leader, Bo Xilai, arrested for allegations that he was contemplating some form of coup or uh, movement uh, in the highest levels of the Chinese government. So what we have is a situation today where she is at the pinnacle of power, he is a very powerful leader, but he is an exposed leader because he is trying to do a lot of things simultaneously. He's created a lot of enemies, and he is also um, trying to do some things in China that have been not been done in the modern age. To the extent that we know very much about public polling in China, it suggests that he enjoys public sentiment support of between 70 and 80 percent. It literally it would be the envy of any political leader in the West. Um, however, it is also the case that he is departing with respect to his international behavior from some of the maxims that were followed by previous leaders. Most previous Chinese leaders have been very careful, uh, chosen not to uh, take steps that could rile relations with European friends or with the United States. It appears that she is more conflict acceptant and is prepared to take nationalist stance on a number of issues, like the so-called South China Sea and the like. So he comes to Washington in probably the most, the tensest period in U.S.-China relations in modern times. But it also is an interesting time. So what, what's the United States in terms of foreign policy? What are we interested in right now? How much time will we spend on Asia? So I'm one of those people that would argue that the lion's share of the history of the 21st century is going to be written in the Asia-Pacific region, but you would not know it from our strategic calendar, right? We're spending an enormous amount of time on India or, excuse me, Iran or Syria or Russia. These are all critically important issues, but I don't think we fully recognize how dominant the opportunities and challenges that are going to be presented by Asia. We talked about it in the earlier panel. Largest rising accumulation of wealth in modern history. Um, the largest middle classes in history. Tremendous 
you know, innovations in cuisine, in style, in culture. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, Asia is now by an order of magnitude. There are more plastic surgeries across Asia uh, than any pla place on, on, on the planet. And that's not just China, it's South Korea, Japan and the like. Incredible music trends and the like. So this is really a hotbed of dynamism. But she comes at a period in which the tensions in the US-China relations are quite acute. And he has, rather than previous leaders, tried in advance of these summits to take steps to smooth the waters. He's done some things that I would have argued with him are not in his best strategic interests. He sent some ships to patrol offshore, uh, naval ships offshore of Alaska. That, for Americans, kind of triggers Cold War-like thinking, right? And during this May Day parade, like, you know, kind of, military exhibit that, that was uh, done uh, earlier in the month in Beijing. He brought a series of a uh, whole group of leaders from Latin America, Asia, Africa, and elsewhere to you know pay tribute and to pay homage. But in addition, they sat and watched as these modern weapons were displayed uh, in front of them. And one of those systems is basically designed to take out an American aircraft carrier. Now, I would just say, generally speaking, if you look back at the last 40 years, um, these are the best 40 years in China's history, by far. A great accumulation of wealth, political stability. Most of that is a result of the hard work and determination of the Chinese people, to which they have to be complimented. But let's also be clear that the United States has played a significant role by keeping peace and stability, by, by being an enormously positive partner of China by keeping our markets open, which is the largest recipient of what China has produced. We have played a significant role in China's arrival on the global stage. And now China, as all great powers do as they arrive, want to rewrite some of those rules. So some of the things that she has done, which I think is more about stirring nationalism, have not gone over well in Washington. And probably the most significant issue is the issue associated with cybersecurity, right? So in the last several months, there have been very public allegations, we can't really confirm or deny them, in which China apparently has hacked into every aspect of every detail of Capricia Marshall's life and my life. Anyone who's ever worked in the US government, they know everything about, right? Those issues might fall into the traditional domain of just spying. Everyone does that. The bigger problem are um, uh, uh, efforts to gain secrets that can be used for commercial gain in a way that is really undermining um, certain aspects of global commerce. And so just yesterday, a ch very senior Chinese team led by the head of state security in the Politburo just left the United States after a five-day sort of whirlwind interaction around cybersecurity. So we'll see if the President and President Xi are able to agree on rules of the road have how to improve behavior in this arena. It will be very tough. Second, I think may, many of you may have heard of this area called the South China Sea. It's this large expanse of 
water that is essentially shared by a number of countries in Southeast Asia and China. Well, China has a view on its ownership or its status in the South China Sea that is generally viewed to be inconsistent with the international law of the sea. But as a result, they've taken steps to fortify and build military installations on these islands. For the United States, if you trace back in our history, what are the things that animate us as a nation? Perhaps the most important, the first use of military power of the United States, the Barbary Coast Pirates. What was the issue that we were concerned by? Steps that would undermine freedom of navigation and the safety and security of commerce on the high seas. Now, yes, these islands are, are difficult, but the real issue for the United States in the South China Sea is that through these waterways, about 50% by value and tonnage of global commerce passes through every year. And that's either energy from the Middle East or produce and production from China and other countries that are going uh, to Northeast Asia or to the United States. Uh, I think China views this area a little bit as a Chinese lake. For us, these international waterways, and we will need to take steps, persistent, consistent steps to indicate that we are determined to maintain that issue. And so what you're gonna have is a tension, and you will see it playing out in some of the discussions between the President and President Xi as he comes to the United States. We consistently try to engage China in what might be described as a 21st century conversation. Now that sounds a little bit academic-y, but basically we talk about the norms and values of the current system that have been good to all of us. Freedom of commerce, intellectual property rights, peaceful uh, treatment of disputes, legal approaches to difficulties, right? And we've tried to enlist China in working with us in sustaining and updating that system. Now, any of you who study hegemonic theory, have ever thought about it in graduate school or whatever, understands that the arriving state is often content to do something with the existing state, the United States, but they never are content with that. They always want to do something different and more. And we're seeing that with China's attempt to establish new financial institutions like the AAIB, uh, and also to take other steps in Asia as a whole. My experience generally with China is that we try to basically erect a conversation around 21st century goals, and a lot of times they revert to what might be described as a 19th century conversation. Despite, we heard a lot of discussion in the previous the, uh, panel about win-win. It's probably the Chinese favorite phrase in every discussion, here's a win-win. But I liked whoever it was who said big win and little win. I, my experience, and I love my very good friends, uh, Chinese diplomats, it's a pretty zero-sum quality to some of that diplomacy, and you've got to be tough, and you've got to be firm and clear in your interests. What 19th century powers liked, including the United States, was spheres of influence. And China is often trying to make clear that these countries in their immediate backyard need to do things that are, shall we say, influenced by uh, the will of Beijing. And I think there is some tension in that general approach. So we will have discussion about the South China Sea. And then there's a range of other areas in which the United States and China either work together or observe each other warily. We worked very well in Iran. North Korea, a little bit of a different story, although tensions between Pyongyang and Beijing are on the up. 
There are clearly issues that the United States and China have to take seriously and have to confront. I'd put at the top of that list climate change, and I'm hopeful that through the good work of John Podest and others, we'll see uh, fundamental progress along these lines in the next couple of months. But the challenges there are enormous. So the key for the presidents, and remember, President Xi has been really focused on the economic crisis. He didn't anticipate this. It's very hard. It puts him at somewhat of a disadvantage. Let me tell you that Chinese friends, when they enter any diplomatic uh, situation, they love to say the ball is in your court and they love to exert leverage, if at all possible. This is one of those circumstances that the United States has the rarest of commodities going into this meeting. We have leverage. The question is whether we will understand it and know how to use it uh, uh, to uh, uh, sustain our own interests and also the relationship with China. So he's going to arrive. The key is going to be how they basically put together a package of issues in which we can demonstrate that we are determined to work together for the 21st century. The challenge is that Asia Pacific is clearly big enough for the both of us, but we're a great power. They're an arriving power, so both of us have to adjust, and that adjustment process is going to be difficult. We have different systems, different ways of life. Chinese military capabilities are starting to rub against our own. The potential for inadvertence and accident is real. We have to work out more of the rules of the road. And then we have to find those areas that we cooperate together on, and we have to demonstrate that to our publics and show why we both believe that our relationship is central. Climate change, hopefully regional hotspots, working together on projects that support uh, uplifting people in Latin America, the world at large. But then also be honest and clear-eyed about areas where we disagree and be very firm. My experience is that the most important ingredient in any successful negotiation with China is a strength and purpose uh, on the U.S. side. And that's hard because you don't want to stray into confrontation, but China respects uh, firmness. And oftentimes, I'll tell business leaders or others who are just desperate to fall all over themselves that, in fact, that approach does not help you in interactions with Chinese friends who ultimately want to deal with a partner who is firm and resolute, ultimately. <laughs> and then lastly, I would just say, I think it's important for the United States and China to find areas where we can work together, that we can demonstrate to each other that we are prepared to work together, as difficult as it is. One of the interesting things that the United States and China share as great powers, different cultures, different civilizations, different approaches to governance, is that we both are deeply un uncomfortable with interdependence, but that interdependence animates our daily lives, right? And learning how to appreciate and understand that will be critical. I work over the last couple of years in building um, institutions that develop deeper cultural ties between the United States and China. I work on a foundation that tries to send American students to China. Uh, the largest number of uh, students in the United States today are from China, over a million. 
after an effort, we finally reached 100,000 over four years during the Obama administration. We're very proud of that. I believe sending Americans to study in China is the most important thing we can do. If we can entrust China with our most precious commodity, our children, that says something very powerful. It also prepares our children for 21st century uh, realities. You have to watch for one thing, though. I have a bunch of young daughters at home. They all speak Chinese. And when they want to actually conspire, they conspire in Chinese. So mom and dad don't know what we're talking about. And it's quite a problem. So, so watch carefully. This is going to be a very intense meeting. President Xi is a hard man. Um, he's going to test President Obama. President Obama has been doing a lot of different things over the course of the last couple of months. I hope and believe he will be up to it. But this summit will say an enormous amount about where this most important relationship is heading in the 21st century. Why don't I stop there? I'm happy to take any questions. Or I don't know if I know the full scope of the program, if I'm done here or questions. So is it, I'm done here, apparently. So no questions. Just like China, no questions. I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. very much to Dr. Campbell and thank you to the panelists and thank you for coming this morning. Goodbye. <laughs>